Good morning. It's good to see you again, and I encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. Our text for today will be verses 1 through 12. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to pray. We'll read our passage together, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us your word, a word that has revealed you, a word that has revealed the truths of who we are, a word that has given us a clear picture of your plan, of your redemption, of your purposes. And so, Lord, help us to look into this perfect treasure, a divine truth this day, that our lives may be changed, that our hearts may be stirred, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Luke 24, beginning in verse one. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential truth on which Christianity stands or falls. You take away this truth, Christianity crumbles. Because of that, there have been many throughout the centuries, throughout the ages who have attempted to explain away the resurrection. There have been many skeptics throughout the years who have sought to deny the fact that it even happens. So many attempts will, happen, will go and people will seek to try to explain that it had to be this or that. But we don't have to really look very far after Jesus' own death and resurrection to find our first skeptics. It's true that there were skeptics among the religious leaders of the day. It's true that there were skeptics among the political leaders of Rome. And it's certainly true that there were skeptics among the vast crowds that had followed Jesus and observed his death and all that had happened. But I think it would be very fair for us to observe this morning that the very first skeptics, it could be said, 
The very first skeptics of the resurrection were Jesus' own disciples. Verse 11, it says, when the women return and report to the apostles what they had encountered, we're told that these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That's Jesus' disciples, his apostles that had followed him and that had observed his ministry, that had been part of all that he had done. One of the things that we could observe from that very recording in Luke's gospel, the fact that they thought this to be an idle tale and they did not initially believe these women, I think that that points actually to the validity of Luke's gospel. It's his honesty as a historian recording the actual facts that accompanied the resurrection. He could have cleaned that up very nicely and said, well, they immediately believed and remembered all that Christ had promised. That would have certainly made for a much smoother reading, wouldn't it? But they didn't. And so Luke, being the good historian that he was, is willing to record the facts as they were. Now, thankfully, we know that the disciples, the apostles, did not remain long in their skepticism. They would soon be reunited with Christ and their faith and their lives would be radically changed forever, for the rest of their lives. Now, one of the things that we have to remember, if you walk through one of the Gospels, and not too long ago, we spent several years going through the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things that we remember from that, and you can look at any of the Gospels, is that the disciples, when Jesus calls them initially, and they walk with him through all of his ministry and observe all that they observed, and even now at his death and resurrection, they were not perfect men. And they were, they were men who were in development in their faith, even now. They were still growing in their faith and in their understanding of who Christ was and all that he had claimed. They, they, we could say that they were a work in progress. That should encourage you and should encourage me. Although in different ways, we can certainly say the say this same is true for us. Our faith is not as always as strong and as sure as it ought to be. But as we consider the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection in which the disciples, the apostles encountered now for the first, being firsthand and, and seeing this empty tomb. As we consider the resurrection and how it impacted them, I think there are some important things, truths, lessons that we could take away and how the resurrection should impact us as well, especially regarding, regarding our own faith. Regarding our own faith. As followers of Jesus, I think we need to see in this passage especially, and some other passages we'll bring in as well, how the resurrection has a direct impact upon our faith and the continued development of it. So I want us to see several things from this text this morning in that light. How does the resurrection impact our faith, our belief, our ongoing commitment to Christ? And if you don't have a commitment to Christ, if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you are greatly welcomed here. We're glad, so glad that you're here. So maybe we can help unpack some things to help you understand what saving faith is even. We'd be loved to sit down with you more and talk about what that means and what that looks like. So let's look at this together. Three truths that we can take away from 
the reality of the resurrection that impact our faith. Number one, the resurrection has something to teach us about the source of our faith. It helps to confirm, we could say. It helps to confirm the source of our faith. Imagine, imagine having spent the last three years walking with Jesus, observing the amazing things he had done, seeing him heal sick people that everyone else had given up on. Jesus comes along and they just pop right up and all is well. Imagine being in the boat when the storm came upon the sea and Jesus merely stands up and speaks a word and immediately the sea was calm. Imagine being with Jesus when he takes that little girl who had died and raises her up. I mean, these are just a few of the examples. And I think it's John's gospel that says, these are just some of the things that were recorded. If we were to list all of them, the books in the world couldn't contain all that Christ did. And the disciples were firsthand witnesses of all this, all of it. They had heard of the promises he had made, the hope that he had fostered, and now he lies dead in a tomb. And the disciples were scattered, hiding, and afraid. We come to that, this passage here in Luke chapter 24, and it's that reality that has now described the situation. Jesus was in a tomb, his disciples were afraid and hiding, and now the women, Mary and Mary and Joanna, come to the tomb to tend to Jesus' body. Now, while they clearly showed a genuine love for the Savior and their commitment to him, there is no indication whatsoever in this text that they were anticipating an empty tomb. In fact, they were talking among themselves. If you compare the gospel accounts, they were actually conversing about how in the world were they going to get that big tomb opened with the stone in front of it. And so the disciples, the apostles were afraid and in depression and hiding, and the women were coming and expressing their devotion and commitment to, to Jesus, but there's zero anticipation of an empty tomb, zero. They're fully expecting to encounter a dead body and to help take care of it. Now that surprises us somewhat if we're familiar with the gospel accounts and the ministry of Jesus. Because how many times had he told them? How many times had Jesus said, at least four we can count, we could go and, and just exhaust the gospels. We, we know several times Jesus told his disciples that he would die and on the third day be raised. You would think that they would be out there like, like, like an opening of a Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, you'd think the tents would be popped up, the grills would be going, games for the kids. I mean, you would think all of this would be going on right here in front of the tomb, waiting for Jesus to do just as he said, but that's not happening. It's not happening. Now we find Mary, Joanna, and Mary coming to the tomb to care for the body. And when they arrive, they find the stone removed and Jesus' body gone. What they do find is what Luke describes as two men dressed in dazzling apparel. 
The other accounts make it clear that these were angels who said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Verse four, we're told that they were perplexed about this. Do not initially respond in, oh yeah, let's celebrate. They're, they're, they're concerned, they're, they're perplexed, a little confused about what's going on here. Well, eventually they run and tell the disciples what they had encountered, and we get to verse 11 where the disciples do not believe them. To them, it seems like an idle tale. What are you talking about? This can't be true. And so curiosity gets the best of Peter, and he eventually goes and finds. We'll pick back up with him in a moment. Listen, the reason that the women who were going to the tomb that day were not anticipating the tomb to be empty. And the reason that the, the, the apostles were afraid and hiding and depressed, all of this was happening to them because they had truly not believed what Jesus had spoken. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican, said this, perhaps we marvel at their unbelief, no doubt, it seems at first sight most senseless, most unreasonable, most provoking. But shall we not do well to look at home? Do we not see around us in the Christian churches a mass of unbelief far more unreasonable and far more blameworthy than that of the apostles? Do we not see after centuries of additional proofs that Christ has risen from the dead a general want of faith which is truly deplorable? And then he concludes by saying, strong faith is indeed a rare thing. Friends, I think one of the things that this reminds us of, this whole encounter with the women and then the apostles and the empty tomb, is that we often fail to understand the things of God and the things that God has said to us because if we're honest, we just simply have trouble believing him. Simplify it for us. We just have trouble believing God. We have trouble taking God at his word. So often, we are men and women of weak faith as well. Again, same guys in verse 11, the same women who were going to tend to the dead body of Jesus were the same people who had seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, walk on water, calm storms. And now they were struggling to believe that he had in fact risen just as he told them he would. It's amazing, but it just reminds us of how faith is often a battle. Faith is often a battle. Our minds, because of the deception of our own hearts, Jeremiah 17, nine talks about how, how our hearts will deceive us. Our minds will often reject the truth even when it's staring us in the face. Faith is indeed a battle. The bottom line was that the women and the disciples, right, at this point had not taken Christ at his word. 
Friends, let this be both a reminder and a rebuke to us. A reminder that we must always take God at his word. A rebuke to us in those times when we haven't. And there are certainly many times where we have not taken God at his word. Friends, your faith will only flourish when it is trusting in the right source. The disciples were more content at this moment to, to, to believe in their experience as to what was going on rather than the very word of Christ that he had already spoken to them. Friends, how often do we do that? How often do we allow the experiences of this life and this world inform what we are to believe instead of allowing the God's word to be the very foundation and filter through which we are to interpret life? often get that confused. We often want to see through the filter of experience rather than the filter of God's authority. And you'll get into all kinds of trouble when you do that. Fear and doubt will fester in your heart when you are trusting in a word different than God's. I just ask you, when do you find your faith most vulnerable? What are those circumstances that you encounter in life where you find yourself wavering in your belief, in your faith? What are those circumstances that impact the strength of your faith. And so I think one of the things that as Christians, I'm talking to Christians right now, as a Christian, you and I have to be honest about is that there are times when we waver in our faith. If you sit here today and tell me that, not me, I'm always strong, 100% in my faith, I believe everything all the time. Well, God's, God ought to be grateful he has me on his side. Friend, that's, you're just foolish. It's a kind way of saying it. Because we have to be honest. We have to wrestle with the truth that, that's, that's often the case in our own hearts and, and, and answer that hard question. What are we trusting in in those moments where we are struggling with our faith? What is it that we are believing at that moment? Are we believing Christ? Are we believing God and taking him at his word? Are we believing something else? And the truth is that if you find yourself wavering in unbelief and struggling with doubt, you are trusting in a word that is different than Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just ask you this question. What is it that you have such a hard time believing? What is it that you have a hard time embracing when it comes to these things? And obviously we can't hash that out together right now, but we would certainly love to sit down and just talk through that some. You've come with a friend or you know someone here, I'm sure that they would love to sit down and talk with you further about that, friend. You and I have a choice to make every single day. Every day that we live, you have a choice to make, I have a choice to make. 
Will I remember Christ's word and trust in that, or will I give my allegiance to another word, another source of authority? Resurrection exposes that here in the life of the, the apostles. Let's look at point number two, the development of faith. How the resurrection here is serving to, to be a, a tool that's not only true and that's redemptive, but also encourages and strengthens the followers of Jesus. So how does the resurrection strengthen our faith? How does it? Well, let me just answer that for us real quick at the beginning. Ultimately, it reminds us that God is faithful to keep his promises period. The resurrection is one of those gigantic stamps that, that, that says, faithful to my promises. That's the role of the angels here at the, at the empty tomb when the women come and, and they said, remember how he told you. Remember how he said this is what he would do. And then we're told, and they remembered his words. Even though the women had gone to the tomb fully prepared to care for the body of Jesus that they instead they come face to face with the fact that God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. The resurrection is living proof of that fact. It should not shock us like it shocked the women, like it was shocking the apostles. It should not shock us that God, when he says he's going to do something, that he actually does it. How often does it just shock us? So often, doesn't it? We're amazed, oh, God actually did what he said he was going to do. The problem is not with God, the problem is with, with our hearts. Resurrection is one of God's greatest promises and it sets the stage even for our own future resurrection. If you were to look in 1 Corinthians 15, it just encourage you, maybe this afternoon, how it would serve you well to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just meditating and thinking on the fact of the resurrection and maybe even talking about it with some of your family members and friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse three, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Twice we're told there that God did in Christ what he said he was going to do in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with his promise. He said he was going to do this, and he did it. Resurrection is one of God's great promises. Friends, the resurrection is just a reminder that you can always take God at his word, even when you don't understand. You can always believe him. You can always take God at his word. He has proven himself time and time again. There's not one promise God has made that he has not kept. Not one. Looking back to see how God has kept his promise in Christ in the past should give us confidence in the present and hope that is secure in the future. 
Resurrection sets the stage even for our future resurrection on the last day. In fact, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he goes on and, and he says in verse um, 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that that the dead are not raised. He goes on there. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says this, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You know, we live in a day that is marked by a lot of fear. We live in a day that is marked by much sin and darkness and chaos. We live in a day where life seems so fragile and so vulnerable, but friend, let your heart not be troubled. If you are in Christ, there's coming a day when you will be raised to endless life with Jesus. Peter, the very same one who ran to the tomb initially in unbelief. Then we're told there in verse 12 that he saw exactly as the women had told him and he marveled at what's going on. And in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter one, verse three, this is what he writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And he goes on and talks about how suffering, how how that should inform our suffering, how that should inform the the chaos in which we live, that, that Christ has accomplished our future resurrection. The fact that we will be, we will die, that we will all be raised, those of us who are in Christ, and we will inherit what he has promised us and what he is keeping for us. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we would just urge you, urge you to consider this fact. Because friend, it is your only hope. It is your only hope of a future that is marked with joy, eternal joy. If you have not trusted, if you're not yielded in faith to Jesus, friend, just just know this. The very God who created you, he made you in his image. But the scripture tells us how all all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. All of us have turned our backs upon our creator. He made us and we said, thanks but no thanks. 
We wanna do things our way. We rebelled against him and, and all of us are marked by the curse of sin. And because of that rebellion and because of that curse, God has every right to condemn us. He has every right and he will. But your hope is the fact that he has given Jesus who came into the world, his own son came into the world. He lived a perfect life, life you and I should have lived, but we didn't. He didn't rebel against his father. He was faithful to his father. He did everything right. He did everything perfect. And yet he died on a cross. You know what happened? Sin happened. Not Jesus' sin, your sin, my sin. And he willingly took upon that cross that day the punishment, the justice that you and I fully deserved from God. And the Bible says that if you would simply place your hope and faith in him, believe in him, turn from your sin, trust in him, your sins will be forgiven, removed far as the east is from the west. You will be clothed in Christ's righteousness, adopted into his family, and have life everlasting. Friend, I would urge you to believe in Christ. Last, number three. Resurrection talks about the obedience of faith. It informs how we are to be obedient to the faith. Once the women encounter the empty tomb and are reminded of what Jesus had promised, they run to tell the disciples. They run and tell the disciples, St. Augustine said that these women are the first preachers of the resurrection, so to speak. And even though the disciples first didn't believe them, Peter goes to see for himself. Once he encountered the empty tomb, we're told that he marveled. And slowly but surely, the disciples encounter Jesus and they believe that he in fact raised from the dead. Remember the story of Thomas, John chapter 20. After several of them had already encountered the empty tomb and they go to Thomas and said, you won't believe what I have. He said, I'm not gonna believe it until I see his hands. Do I see the scars? Do I see for myself? He's still, and he's got his brothers there saying, no, no, it's really empty. We've actually talked to him. He's alive, we've seen him. And he's still saying, I'm not buying it until I see him. Well, Jesus, gracious as he is, shows up. Thomas falls at his feet. My Lord and my God, he says. Eventually the disciples, they're slow, but they eventually begin to get it. In fact, you can read the rest of Luke chapter 24 and you can even see how some of the disciples on their road to Emmaus were talking about all of these things that had gone on and were, were just amazed and still perplexed somewhat by it. And Jesus reveals his identity to them and walks on the road with them a ways and converses with them. And even in verse 38, Verse 36, it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you, why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is my myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. They continued to struggle somewhat, but they eventually, slowly came to the fact that 
he indeed had been raised from the dead. And when you look at the rest of this passage and the rest of, you can go to the book of Acts and just read all that the disciples and the apostles did. It is astounding. Verse 51, as he begins to prepare to go back to his father in heaven, verse 51 says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verse 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Resurrection now gave them a faith that led to action. They respond in worship, they respond in joy, they respond in faithfulness. Friends, because of the resurrection, Christians ought to be the happiest people on the planet. Are you happy? Are you joyful? And if not, why? Your eyes aren't on Christ. This past week we had the opportunity to go to Disney World. And on one of their signs when you're driving in, it says, Disney World, the happiest celebration on earth. And I would say, well, we enjoyed ourselves there, not quite. The local church ought to be the happiest celebration on earth. Eventually, these doubting disciples would receive the Holy Spirit and be sent out, we're told in Acts, to turn the world upside down for the sake of the gospel. Most of them ended up giving their life as martyrs for the sake of King Jesus. Friends, the resurrection spurs us to action. The empty tomb changes everything. Folks, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we would be fools. We would be fools to shrink into our own selfish kingdoms, be wrapped up all in earthly pleasures, and waste our time and resources on things that will one day be no more. We would be fools to do that. Because Christ has in fact been raised from the dead and he's doing a work of redemption that is far greater than you and I can even think or imagine. Friends, that should lead us, that should spur us to invest our lives, count the cost and invest our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the building of the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples go from skeptics to really, the time their ministry's finished, being martyrs for the faith. From skeptics to martyrs, that's a huge transformation. That's a huge transformation, how these feeble, fearful, struggling, doubting men and even women went from that reality to embarking in a mission where they would lay down their lives because of how certain they were that Christ died and he was raised and he lives at the Father's right hand and he's coming again. What about you? What about your faith? You see, you're somewhere on that spectrum from being a skeptic to a martyr. Some of you may gladly, even now gladly, label yourself skeptic, that's me. Some of you may say, not a skeptic, I just struggle. Some of you say, I'm a Christian, but I struggle. 
You're somewhere on that continuum. What about your faith? Maybe you find your faith wavering today. Let me just tell you, you're actually in good company. Peter and John, James, were such men. Mary and Joanna and the other Mary were such women. But you don't have to remain there. There is no need to continue living in the fear and doubts of Saturday when we can live in the hope of Sunday's victory. Friend, how is your faith? What are you, what are you building your faith on? What is the source of your faith? How is your faith being developed? And where is it showing itself in obedience and faithfulness to Christ? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us of this glorious reality that we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Lord, as we consider these things today, I pray that our faith would be checked, our faith would be examined, our hearts would be convicted. Father, all of us have our doubts and struggles, our fears. All of us, Lord, struggle. Lord, there's not a perfect man or woman, boy or girl in this room. So Lord, would you expose our hearts? Lord, help us see what you see so that we can respond as you would have us respond. Father, where there needs to be saving faith, would you give that today? Would you open the eyes of unbelief let there be a flood of faith that just emerges in the hearts of those who have not yet known you. Rescue people today, Lord. Rescue people from this world and from themselves and from certain, from certain doom. And for Lord, those who have been rescued, God, would you help us to walk as if we've been rescued? So many of us wallow in misery and pity and doubt and fear when we have every reason with great confidence to walk in joy and to worship and to be investing ourselves for the sake of Christ. God, would you stir our hearts to that obedience, to that faithfulness that is so apparent when one encounters the living Christ. God, would you move in our hearts today and lead us to faithfulness that you would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.